We're going to look at the first uh, 17 verses of Luke 7 today, which includes two separate uh, healings. One is of a centurion's servant in Capernaum. The other one is a uh, a young man who has passed away, the only son of a widow. Uh, We're going to start with the first. I'm going to read the whole chunk of that first healing together, and then we'll go through it a little bit more orderly, starting in verse 1. Now, when he concluded all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. And a certain centurion's servant, who was dear to him, was sick and ready to die. So when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and to heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving. For he loves our nation and is built as a synagogue. And Jesus went with them. And when he was already not far off from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you, but say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and I say to one, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, we'll come back to that word, and turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I said to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And those who were sent, returning to the house, found the servant well who had been sick. Now, there's some similarities between these two healings that I want to talk about up front. One is that both are very public. We see that this one of the centurion's servant happens after he's addressed this big crowd, right? There's probably still people lingering. We know he has a multitude. He has a crowd with him. He turns and addresses when the friends come to him. That's very much out in the open. And in the same way, the healing of the widow's son uh, in the city of Nain is also very public. There's a big funeral procession there, lots of people from the community, of course, Jesus' own followers. These are both very much out in the open. Another thing that's similar between these two is that neither of the people who are healed asked for it. Now, of course, the dead guy, it would be awfully hard for him to ask to be healed. Um, but the, the centurion's servant doesn't ask, right? He's, he's so far removed from Jesus, he's like three, three divisions removed, right? It's the centurion who is his master, and it's not even him. It's his servants and the, and the, or it's his friends and the, um, the elders of the Jews who actually come and talk to Jesus. So there's, there's, a, there's a big removal, right? So another of the people who actually asks or who actually gets healed asks for it. And, and that's a... This is something Jesus does all the time, is he heals on behalf of somebody, right? So in Luke 5, a few weeks ago, we went through this. We had the man who was lowered down through the roof, right, on the mat, where Jesus was, uh, was teaching. And it wasn't the man on the mat who insisted on going to see Jesus, and it wasn't the man on the mat who insisted on being let down through the roof, and it wasn't the man on the mat whose faith Jesus recognized and healed him because of, right? It's the men who bring him to Jesus, it says there, and who problem solve into leading him down through the tiles, through the roof. And it's those men's faith that Jesus recognizes and responds to and heals the man because of. Okay? And sometimes he also heals on behalf of somebody's disbelief. In chapter 6, very early on in that chapter, like a year and a half ago, Matt, give or take, right? <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> we had the story of the man with the, with the withered hand, right? Verses 6 through 8 of chapter 6. Um, and it's the scribes and the Pharisees um, slyness, it's, it's what's in their hearts, that sort of meanness in their hearts that Jesus recognizes and responds to, and that's what kind of initiates that healing. There's, there's, that, uh, there's that belief there, right? So let's go through this section a little bit. Verse 1, it says, When he concluded all his sayings in the hearing of the people, 
um, he entered Capernaum. Okay, so this gives us a time and a place. We know what happened after he gave his kind of stump speech and laid out the basics of the fundamentals of faith and what it means to follow him and how you should act and so forth. So we know what happened right after that. So this stuff is fresh in people's minds. It happened in Capernaum, which is a, it's a city on the, the northern shore of, of the Sea of Galilee. Um, and Jesus is, uh, is going to... Sorry, excuse me. In verse 2, we have a certain, a certain centurion's servant who was dear to him, was sick and ready to die. So we know where it happens, we know when it happens, now we know who. Okay? So a centurion, we're going to identify the characters here. A centurion is a Roman soldier, right? As you might guess from the name, they would have 100-ish or slightly fewer people underneath them. Um, this guy's a Gentile, he's a Roman, he's a representative of this, uh, this huge empire that controls basically the whole known world to them at the time. Centurions are, are steady, they're leaders, they've been promoted to their position because they can lead, because they have fortitude, they're dedicated, they have high standing in society, they're wealthy, they get paid 5, 10, 15 times as much as a typical soldier does. These are men who are high in stature in the community. And they're disciplined people who've earned their position through their hard work and their diligence. And they carried with them a staff called a, I'm going to botch the Latin on this, um, called a, a vitus or a vitus or something like that, which is their symbol of their position, but it's also what they use to beat people who disobey them and such and need, uh, need some correction. And they could do this even to Roman citizens, which was kind of odd, because um, it wasn't unusual for a Roman in, in that kind of stature to have authority over you know, the Jews and, and slaves and such, but to be able to, to punish a Roman citizen wasn't, wasn't the norm. So that shows you kind of how, the, how much authority, how much trust is placed in the centurions in their position. They had that kind of authority. They could punish even Roman citizens. Now, we also hear that this guy, this particular centurion, was a little bit different because he had a servant who was dear to him. And this is unusual because a servant's role at that point, they're slaves, essentially. They, they, they work and live at, at the behest and the whims of their master, right? They're essentially their tools to get things done. And when a tool breaks, you don't sit around and wait for it to get better. You buy a new one, right? You, you throw the old one in the trash and get a new one. And essentially, it was the same thing for a servant in that era. It wouldn't have been uncommon for this guy to have been simply killed. And him, the centurion found a new servant to fill his role. But he doesn't, right? It says, a certain centurion's servant who was dear to him, Okay? And that word is, is precious, right? He loves him. He's dear to him. This is special. This is an intimate relationship, okay? This guy is irreplaceable, okay? And we don't know whether that's because of he's been through a bunch of wars with this guy or he doesn't need to be micromanaged or he's just really efficient or what it is about him exactly, but something has made this servant dear to this centurion, okay? It's a special relationship. So the centurion is not the norm, right? He's got somebody who's dear to him. And the servant is not the norm. He, he is dear to the, the, the centurion. Okay? This relationship is not the norm. Okay? So verse 3, it says, When he heard about Jesus, him, he being the, uh, the centurion, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. And there's a whole bunch of interesting things in this one verse. One is that he heard about Jesus, which means somebody told him, right? I don't know who it is, but they must have been pretty convincing um, because he understands Jesus' place in society, at least to some respect, so much so that he sends elders of the Jews to him, you know, people of his same ethnicity, essentially, right? He's culturally sensitive to Jesus. He understands that Jesus is a Jew and a rabbi, and so he sends the elders to, to speak to him. 
And what they do is they plead with him to come and heal his servant. Verse 4, this continues. It says, when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving, for he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Okay, so these elders of the Jews, they plead and they beg. These are interesting words to use. Okay, and so why do they have to do that? You think maybe it's because maybe they didn't think Jesus would come, right? Maybe they would have assumed that Jesus, like them, had kind of a poor, dim view of Gentile people, like this Roman centurion, right? And so they give him the only reason they can think of why you would want to spend your precious time on a Gentile, which is that, you know, he's helpful to us. He's generous to us. You know, he likes us. We get something out of this relationship. The subtext here is that we know Gentiles are awful, and we wouldn't normally ask you to spend your time with him, but uh, this guy likes us, and we get something out of it. Okay, this is kind of like a politician all of a sudden voting for something because they got a big donation, right? And this new law kind of helps that company. What do you know? Same kind of thing, right? It's beneficial. That's how they understand it. That's what they're, that's what they're asking him to do. Okay. So this guy, another odd thing about this particular centurion, he's, he's funded a synagogue out of his pay. We know he's fairly wealthy, but he spent the money and the time to, to fund a synagogue for these people which wasn't totally unheard of. Um, Josephus tells us that, that the Romans would sometimes do this as a way of kind of pacifying people. It kind of keeps them happy, right? It's a lot easier to subjugate a people you're occupying if they you know, don't have all those day-to-day worries and they have kind of a place they can go and be happy in. It was a tool for the, uh, for the Romans in a sense. Verse 6, it says, Jesus went with them, so... For whatever reason, whether he was swayed by their words or whether he, was, uh, he had his own thoughts, which I would assume is the case, he goes with them. And it says, when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. So we need to look at the people carrying the message. On the one hand, the first time he sends elders of the Jews, right? He sends this culturally similar group of people to go and talk to Jesus, kind of make this introduction and get him to, to come. And then as, he, as Jesus gets closer to the centurion's home, he sends friends, people who are more intimate to him, closer to him, would know his heart better. Okay, and, they carried, and they carried different messages with them, right? <clears throat> when the Jews go to him, they say, you know, he's worthy, because he funds us and he likes us and such. They sort of try to sway him by money and favoritism. Okay, but the friends deliver the real meaning from the centurion's heart and tell him, I understand that I'm not worthy, right? So there's a, there's a couple ways that he's not worthy. One is that I think he understands, probably, because he spends so much time with the Jews, he's funded a synagogue, etc. I think he understands that for Jesus, a Jew and a rabbi, to come into his house would make him in some way unclean. Okay, And he's sensitive to that. He recognizes that. But I also think that the centurion somehow understands Jesus' holiness to some extent. I don't know how far, but I think that's what he's, what he's getting at here. This is similar to when Simon Peter, in, in chapter 5, right when Jesus, you know, he goes and he gives them, he tells them to go back out in the water and let their nets down after they've had a night of, of worthless fishing. And they let their nets down and they get so many fish, they start to sink the boats. And Simon Peter says in chapter 5, verse 8, he says, it says, When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. He understood his own unworthiness. He recognized that in himself. And I think the centurion, to some extent, is doing the same thing here. Because we see over and over again that when Jesus shows up, we have to be confronted with who we really are. 
So the question is, the Jews are saying he's worthy, centurion's worthy for this to happen. He's saying he's not through his friends. So which is it? Is he worthy? I think the centurion understands that once makes earthly people worthy to other earthly people, what makes them love and adore you is not the same stuff that makes you worthy to God. Okay? I think he understands that what makes him worthy to other people doesn't make him worthy to God and therefore to Jesus. Okay? I think he has some sense of that. Now, you can say maybe he just understands that because he's a good person. He's kind of been a hand with the Jews. Maybe he's really smart and he kind of reasoned it out or whatever. Or is it because of verse 3 where we learned that somebody told him about Jesus? He heard about Jesus. And if you were a carrier of Jesus' message in that first century, what would the message you sent be? What would you have to say? You would have the basics that were laid out in chapter 6, right? In the Sermon on the Plain, the kind of fundamentals of Jesus' faith. Okay? We have humility, we have goodness of the heart, right? we have faith, we have love each other, we have listen to God and respect Him and don't be a hypocrite. Some basic stuff. I think this is fueling the centurion's understanding of who Jesus is and therefore how he interacts with them. And I think he also understands, this is me thinking here, that's dangerous, okay? Um, I think he understands that it's not enough that he has done good works, that he has been pleasant to the Jews in the area, that he's helped them build a synagogue, etc., I think he understands that it's not enough that he just hasn't beat them up the way that other centurions might have. I think he understands that's not enough. I think he understands that our good works are, as Isaiah 64 says, as worthless as filthy rags when we do them for ourselves or for glory in the public eye as these elders of the Jews seem to have taken on him. But when we do good works for the Lord, right, then we're hitting the mark, and they're not a product of our own selves, but they're the product of hearts following the Lord as we saw in the 45, 46, etc. of of chapter 6. Um, where he said, out of, out of good hearts come good works and good words, right? <clears throat> so, with that in mind, verse 7, therefore, he says, he continues talking about his unworthiness, therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you, okay, but say the word and my servant will be healed. He has another expression of his unworthiness and he has an expression of certainty. He's certain of Jesus' ability, he doesn't say, I heard a rumor that you might be able to help me out, or I think you could if you try really hard. He says, say the word, and I know my servant will be healed. Okay, he's certain about that. And over and over again, we see Jesus heal people because of certainty, because of faith, a certain faith. Okay? In chapter 5, where we have the man with leprosy, he says with certainty, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Not, I think you might be able to. Would you try really hard, please? He says, you can do it. And of course he does. Later on in, in chapter 7, we'll see the woman anoint his feet with oil in the house of Simon the Pharisee, right? And Jesus says to her, your faith has saved you. Not the fact that my feet smell really good now, but your faith has saved you, right? Same thing in Luke chapter 8. Okay, we have the woman who's had a flow of blood for 12 years, and she is certain that if she just touches the hem of his robe, that she'll be better. And Jesus finds her out, of course, and says, again, your faith has made you well. Right? And made you well means saved you. Your faith has saved you. And that healing is the interruption of another healing, which is him going to the, to the house of Jairus, whose daughter is dead. And, and after this little delay, they come to him, they say, she's dead, don't worry about it. And Luke says in, in chapter 8, verse 50, only believe and she will be made well. Over and over again, he says, believe, have faith, be certain, right? Lazarus, in, in, in John chapter 11, he's been in the tomb for four days by the time Jesus gets there. 
And in, but in verse 22, we see one of the great expressions of faith in all of Scripture, which is Martha, Lazarus' sister, coming up to Jesus and saying, but even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. She is certain about that. Over and over again, he demonstrates that it's faith that heals, that certainty, that commitment. Have you ever asked for healing from God? I have. And has it ever not been answered? Yeah. Have you ever wondered, maybe I didn't ask with certainty? Maybe I was hedging my bets and thinking, you could probably do this, God, but I bet you won't because I'm kind of unimportant or whatever it is, right? You weren't certain, right? I'm certain I'm not the only one. That's what I'm certain of. Now, the centurion was certain, right? He believed. And so he goes on in verse 8. He says, For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And I say to my servant, go and do this, and he does it. He is certain because he understands Authority. He understands chain of command. He understands structure. He understands orderliness. If nothing else, the Roman army was pretty orderly. They had things figured out in a structural way. And the centurion knows his power. He knows he has the power to say, go and do this, do this task, come here, whatever it is, and he knows it will be obeyed. He understands his authority, and he also understands that there is an end to it. He understands that it doesn't extend toward healing people. He knows that he can't do this himself. He understood his place, and I think I draw from that that he, in some way, understands that Jesus does occupy that space. He does have that authority, right? He's heard about Jesus. He's a friend of the Jews. He's obviously committed to understanding that Jesus knows what he's doing. I think he recognizes that Jesus does have that power. And so much as this guy might have to obey an order from somebody higher up in the armies than himself, he understands that Jesus occupies a different strata than he does. And he's perfectly willing to admit it. He has humility in that. And so verse 9, Jesus hears these things, and he marveled at him. And he turned around, and he says to this great crowd who's been following him, I say to you, I haven't found such great faith, not even in Israel. And those who were sent, returning to the house, found the servant well who had been sick. Now, it's the word marvel. Jesus only marvels one other time. One well, this, this same story happens in Matthew, where he, he marvels there too, but in Mark chapter 6, Jesus marvels at somebody's unbelief rather than their belief, right? This is back when he's, he's in his hometown of, of, of in, in Nazareth, and he's, been, he's being rejected from the temple, and it says in, in Mark 6, Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Now, he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, and he marveled because of their unbelief. So two things in Scripture make Jesus marvel. Really strong faith and really strong unbelief, okay? Now, the multitudes and all the people who are following Jesus and learning from him and such, they marvel all the time, right? They're always astonished. They're always like, wow, what just happened? I don't understand this. What's going on? How did this happen? They're doing this all the time, right? They see miraculous things. Jesus only a couple of times, right? And he is amazed in this instance. He's going, he's astonished, right? Because of this Gentile Roman soldier. 
right? Because this guy has the attributes and the attitudes and the personality and the heart that he's been looking for. Note what Jesus says, nowhere have I found. Suggests that he's been looking for this, and now he's found it in a Gentile Roman soldier, this, this embodiment of the oppression of Israel. This is where he finds it. And so Luke is painting the picture for us in this, in this text of Jesus has found what a faithful person looks like. And guess what? It's not what you expected. Certainly not what the Jews expected. I'm going to make an abrupt turn into the second part of this section, and then we'll talk about how they compare to each other. Um, Verses 11 through 16, I'll read through on the whole, and then we'll get into that again verse by verse. 11 through 16 here in in Luke chapter 7. This is the second healing instance. It says, Then it happened the day after that he went into a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him and a large crowd. And when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said, Do not weep. Then he came and touched the open coffin, and those who carried him stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. So he who was dead sat up and began to speak, and he presented him to his mother. Then fear came upon all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen up among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him went throughout all Judea and all the surrounding region. This is a shorter story, a pinpoint kind of story. Start in verse 11. Then it happened the day after, the day after he's just done this healing of the centurion's servant, that he went into a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him and a large crowd. So we we gather some facts. Once again, Luke, Luke gives us kind of the background of the story. He gives us the basics. The day after. So Nain is 25, 26-ish miles away from Capernaum. This is a full day's walk, as you can imagine, when you're not driving your Tahoe, right? It's a little bit of a hike. It's a full day's hike to get there. Um, And when he gets there, we we find out that he has a crowd with him, right? A a large crowd. Jesus doesn't travel with little crowds. He's got a large crowd with him. And we find out some other details about the situation in verse 12, where it says... When he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a large crowd from the city was with her. Another large crowd here, right? This is a really interesting set of crowds. We have one, this procession coming out of the city, this funeral procession with a dead guy, a bunch of people crying and and mourning him. Big crowd, a crowd of death, a procession of death, right? And we have this other procession that Jesus is leading in with a large crowd behind him, this procession of life, right? Then I come into contact. The, a funeral procession in that culture is a big deal. It's a community thing. It's loud. It's, it's noisy. There are musicians. There are professional mourners. Um, there are people going out of their way to make a show of how sad they are, right? It's a big deal, especially if you recognize the situation that this woman has just been put in by the death of her only son, Verse 12 tells us that she was a widow. She doesn't have a husband, right? We know that she only has one son, and he's now dead. This is not a good setup for a woman in ancient Israel. Not a lot of job opportunities for a widow who doesn't have any kids in ancient Israel, right? Essentially, in cultural terms, she was in deep water, right? She was in trouble. There's no, there's no institutional welfare. There's no real support. And in fact, this 
funeral was probably the last time she can expect anybody from the community to really go out of their way to, to be around her and help her out. And a lot of that may simply be because they are doing a really good job of mourning for her, right? <clears throat> she's not going to get that support going forward. In fact, she's probably destined to be poor, to end up destitute, homeless, to be begging, and probably die younger than she should. That's the life that she's looking at right now, without a son or without a husband in ancient Israel. <clears throat> That's kind of scary. So when Jesus sees this in verse 13, it says, The Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and said to her, Do not weep. Now, first of all, she's not in a state of mind to probably recognize who in the world Jesus is. Now, remember, they don't have Instagram, they don't have Facebook, they don't have phones and cameras and mimeographs, they don't even have mail service, they don't know what Jesus looks like. She's probably heard some stories about this guy who's been you know, with a crowd following him around, performing miracles and stuff, but who's to say whether she could possibly recognize in that moment, as she's mourning her son's death, that this is the guy. To her, this is just some person with a bunch of people following behind him, and she's, he's interrupting her son's funeral service. Okay, And so here he comes. There's hundreds of people in Jesus' procession. There's dozens, maybe hundreds, in the funeral procession. And they come and they, come, they, they touch points, just very, very, very small space, just one point of contact, right? And verse 13, that word there, that word Lord, is an interesting word. I'm a word guy, I'm a language guy. That's what I've studied, but not Greek, so forgive me. But the pronunciation, I think, is, is kurios. That's, that's the word for Lord there. In the, in the Greek, which in the King James Version of the Bible appears almost 750 times. Okay, this is a really common word in the Bible. Okay? This is the first time that it appears in Luke from the author pointing to Jesus. There's other people previously who call him Lord, who call Jesus Lord, I think three or four times up to this point. But this is the first time that the author of the book of Luke calls him Lord. And this word, which means supreme, it means master, it's a holy word, it's a really, really high, strong word. I don't think it's a coincidence that the first time the author of this book calls him Lord is in tandem with great compassion, where he says, when the Lord saw her, here is this word, this word Lord, this is really important, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. The first time he calls him Lord, he's expressing deep compassion. So, what does that tell us about the nature of God, right? I think he's making a point. Luke is a very particular kind of writer. That's why I like him. He's nerdy. He's got lots of detail. He's interviewed lots of people. He knows what he's talking about, and he gives us details that other gospel accounts don't in many situations. And I don't think it's a coincidence that he says Lord and compassion in the same sentence here. We can turn to Exodus chapter 34 where it says, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, yet he doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. This is who God is, right? He is compassionate by definition. By biblical definition, he is compassionate and gracious. And Luke is pointing that out again here in verse 13. He's showing us that that compassion extends not just from the heavenly God, but into the bodily God of Jesus Christ, God incarnate on earth, that same compassion is in him, okay? And in verse 14, he acts on that compassion. It says, he came and he touched the open coffin. Some of your translations will probably say beer, which is a 
on a wooden rack they would carry a, a body on, or maybe up here, I'm not sure, but somehow or other. <clears throat> and those who carried him stood still, and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. So he who was dead sat up and began to speak, and he presented him to his mother. He commands the man to rise. I say to you, arise. All these other chumps can say whatever they want, but I said you arise. <clears throat> Jesus is acting on his compassion. He's responding out of love to this woman's situation, okay? Even beyond the extent of, of cultural norm, right? Touching this, this, this dead person's beer, this open coffin, makes him unclean, okay? But Jesus' compassion extends beyond the cultural norms and the cultural mores of that society. It's beyond that. It doesn't matter. His compassion is bigger than that. <clears throat> And their response to this, when they see this, the people says in verse 16, it says, Then fear came upon all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen up among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him went throughout all Judea and all the surrounding region. Fear came upon all. This is a pretty common response to, to something godly happening, right? Or an angel appearing and other such things. And they glorify God. Not Jesus, specifically. Note that. They glorify God because they understand that God has the power to do such things as this. And they call him a great prophet. Now, you could take that at first glance to say, well, that's kind of an insult to Jesus because he's so much more than a prophet, right? We know that. But he was also a prophet, right? He foretold all kinds of things. And to these people, I'm willing to give them a little slack. In their understanding, they didn't fully comprehend Jesus' role and who he was and his full holiness. And calling him a great prophet is really the highest compliment they could possibly give somebody. Okay, Because only a couple of people have ever raised somebody from the dead before, Elijah and Elisha, both great prophets, maybe the greatest prophets. Right? Those guys have raised somebody from the dead before. So to put, to put Jesus in that kind of company is a pretty high compliment that they're giving him. And it's at least a partial acknowledgement, if incomplete, of, of who he is and his power. But they, they do recognize, they do understand that God has done this act. Okay? And they said God has visited his people. And he has visited, and I don't think they have any comprehension of what exactly they're hitting on the head right there when they talk about him coming to be present. So we have these two stories of healing. We have the centurion's servant who is healed from a distance, through several intermediaries. And we have the young man, the only son of a widow, who was healed. And Jesus comes literally right up to him, physically nearby him, and heals him. So that's one of the differences between these two. We talked about some similarities. This is one of the differences between the two healings. One is that he, he comes up physically close to the young man and heals him. Whereas the centurion... Jesus never meets the centurion, much less his servant. And Luke is using this as a writer. This is where I finally get to put that degree to use. <laughs> Luke is using this as a writer to demonstrate the strength of his faith and how powerful not just his faith is, but faith in general, good faith is. Okay? The centurion never sees Jesus, but he doesn't have to. There are billions and billions of people who have never seen Jesus and never will on this earthly plane. Pretty, pretty much everybody except since he died. A couple, couple exceptions there, of course. But out of billions, I think that's a rounding error more than anything. So it's not necessary to have met Jesus 
in order to believe in him and therefore to qualify for eternal life after death. Okay? An unseen faith is not an imperfect faith and it's not incomplete and it's not disadvantaged. If anything, he's showing us through this passage, the first healing especially, that it may actually be more powerful, right? That faith engaged at a distance is actually more impressive. He believes without seeing. And keep in mind, too, that Luke is writing for an audience several years, many years after Jesus' death, and a Gentile audience, notably, who they've never seen Jesus either. And they may have questions like, well, how am I supposed to get this figured out if I never even met the guy, right? That would be an understandable question for Luke's audience. And he's addressing that by how he's telling the story. <clears throat> There's a, a section in Romans chapter 10 um, where Paul's writing and explaining kind of how, how being saved comes about. And it starts in verse 12, and he says, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, and I think you might as well pencil in Roman there, for the same Lord is over all, sorry, the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Okay, so we've got to call upon the name of the Lord in order to be saved. Got it. Verse 14, how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? Okay, so I've got to believe and then I can call on him and then I'll be saved. And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? Okay, so I have to hear first, and then I can believe, and then I can call on his name, and then I can be saved. This is going to be a long process. And how shall they hear without a preacher? Okay, so somebody's got to give them the word so they can hear it, so they can believe it, so they can call on him, so they can be saved. And verse 15, and how shall they preach unless they are sent? This is getting really complex. So somebody has to be sent to give the word so somebody can hear it, so somebody can believe it, so somebody can call on his name so they can be saved. I ran out of fingers. Okay? They don't have to lay eyes on him. Nowhere in that section does it say you've got to see Jesus face to face and have him give you the okay. It says you've got to hear about him. You don't need to see him. You need to hear about him. You need to hear about Jesus and his power and his love and his compassion so that you can believe. You need to hear about Jesus just like the centurion did. It tells us in verse 3 that he heard about Jesus. And I don't know if he ever became a follower of Jesus, if he ever converted, if he was born again or whatever. I don't know that. It doesn't say. But it does say, it shows us that he believed in him and he believed in his power and his authority. And he had faith because of that and because of what he'd heard. And his servant was healed because of that faith from a distance That's how effective that faith is, that healing happens from a distance. Jesus is effective from a distance. God can work from a distance, and he will also close that distance when necessary. He didn't have to be right there with the man on the bier to heal him. He could have healed him from a distance too. He didn't. He was there, and he was moved by her. Some of the translations call this his heart was moved or, or reached out or some such thing. Mine says simply compassion. But it says he had compassion on her, and he acted on that compassion. That's the key point. He acted on that compassion. He acted on behalf of a woman who was essentially staring down the gun barrel of a life being forgotten by society and left to die poor and alone. He acted on that compassion for her. So when we hear things like, a life committed to Jesus is going to cause you pain and suffering 
and going to be hard, we can take some heart at least in knowing that God is moved with compassion for those who suffer and that he acts on that compassion. And we should all be so gracious as to do the same, that we would have the same kind of compassion in us that we would be compelled to act on it and that it wouldn't matter who the recipients of that compassion are, whether they are people who represent the enemy that could have been referenced in in chapter 6, this Roman Gentile guy, or whether it's somebody who's from a completely different cultural background entirely, somebody who has done us harm, or whether it's somebody who is simply on the fringe of society as the widow was. It shouldn't matter who that person is. The compassion should still be there. And would that we could have that kind of faith in him, that we would be willing to act out on it, right? That we would do whatever is within our authority that we've been granted, which is different from what Jesus had been granted and different from what the centurion had been granted, but we have our own strengths and our own power and our own gifts that we've been given through Christ, and would that we would use those the same way, that we would have the same kind of compassion and that we would use the blessings of our abilities as we are under authority to go out and be bold and be unashamed of our faith and act that way on our compassion, that we would not only feel it, but that we would be compelled to do something about it. There's no hesitation when Jesus sees that situation and has that compassion to her. He doesn't weigh the risks and the benefits. He doesn't step back and work out a spreadsheet. He doesn't say, is this going to harm me? Are these people who are following me, who have been with me for so long, are they going to look at me weird if I do this? He acts because that's who God is. And that's who he spent most of chapter 6 telling us to be. He loved, and he told us to have compassion, to love our enemies, to have good hearts, and that good things would spring forth from that. And in all of that, he's telling us to act, to do something about it. Luke is using this story in chapter 7 of, of his book. He's illustrating that Jesus is practicing what he preached in chapter 6. And we should be doing the same thing. If nothing else, this should show us that there should be nothing standing in our way, right? There should be no barrier greater than what Jesus was facing. And the stuff he did was so monumental that we shouldn't have any fear about acting out of compassion, right? We should be able to follow that lead. He doesn't expect us to heal people from a distance or to bring people back from the dead. What he expects is us to love and to have compassion in the same way that he does. And so he showed us what that was like. He laid it out in chapter 6, and now he's showing us how to live that out. And it has taken me a long time to understand that's what he was doing here. And I'm convicted by that, and I'm about to break into tears because I'm realizing several times in my life that I haven't done exactly what he's telling me to do. So, as you take this home with you, Let it burrow into your heart and understand that when you have compassion, don't wait. Don't stop and consider. Act on that. That compassion is from God. That is who God is. And as he dwells in us in the Holy Spirit, he has given us that. That compassion comes from him. So act on it. Act with faith and act with certainty, just as that centurion did. He was certain that even though he wasn't a Jew and he wasn't a member of the state of Israel, he was still certain of who Jesus was, and he acted on it. He was willing to act on it. And he was willing to admit that he couldn't do it. And so he found somebody who could. 
Let's talk to that man who can. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your compassion, for your love of us that you would send out a messenger, and not just a messenger, but a sacrifice, to give us an example of how to live a life that is in some small way like you, that we could have even a bit of that compassion that you have for all of us, for all others, to look past divisions of race and creed and religion and social strata and all these things. Give us the willingness, the energy, the, the, the love to reach beyond those things and simply accept that people are your children, Lord, to have compassion on them and to help them when we see them in need, when we see them suffering, to help them however we can. Lord, you've blessed us with such great gifts. I pray that we would all go out of here unafraid to use them. Lord, bless these people this week. Thank you so much for being part of the service this morning, Lord, for inhabiting our lives, for giving us your word, Father, which is of such great depth that we can never possibly touch the bottom of it. Lord, simply thank you. Amen.